Well, we certainly live in times that are not tranquil. Uh, there's so much discord and divide in our own country, in the world. It seems like everything we see in the news just seems to heighten our thoughts that there's so much of a lack of love. So I thought it'd be helpful this morning to think about uh, divine love, Christian love. Uh, I need it more, I trust, than anyone in this room. But I'd like to preface um, our thinking together about uh, love this morning with a brief uh, quote from C.S. Lewis on the great divorce. Uh, let me read it, hold it, uh, and I trust when we get to the end of the uh, message this morning, uh, this will make sense. So C.S. Lewis in the great divorce, as you know, he writes about a man who goes to heaven and what he sees and experiences there. Uh, he arrives uh, with others on a bus. And here's what he says. At first, of course, my attention was caught by my fellow passengers who were still grouped about in the neighborhood of the bus. Though beginning, some of them to walk forward into the landscape with hesitating steps, I gasped when I saw them. Now that they were in the light, they were transparent, fully transparent when they stood between me and it, smudgy and imperfectly opaque when they stood in the shadow of some tree. They were, in fact, ghosts, <clears throat> man-shaped stains on the brightness of that air. One could attend to them or ignore them at will as you do with the dirt on a window pane. I noticed that the grass did not bend under their feet. Even the few drops of dew were not disturbed. Then some readjustment of the mind or some focusing of my eyes took place, and I saw the whole phenomenon the other way around. The men were as they had always been, as all men I had known had been, perhaps. It was the light, the grass, the trees that were different, made of some different substance, so much solider than things in our country that men were ghosts by comparison. Moved by a sudden thought, I bent down and tried to pluck a daisy which was growing at my feet. The stalk wouldn't break. I tried to twist it, but it wouldn't twist. I tugged till the sweat stood out on my forehead and I had lost most of the skin off of my hands. The little flower was hard not like wood or even like iron, but like diamond. There was a leaf, a young, tender birch leaf, lying in the grass beside it. I tried to pick up the leaf, 
my heart almost cracked with the effort. And I believe I did just raise it. But I had to let it go at once. It was heavier than a sack of coal. As I stood recovering my breath with great gas and looking down at the daisy, I noticed that I could see the grass no between my feet, but through them. I also was a phantom. Who will give me words to express the terror of that discovery? Well, this morning I would like to think with you about Christian love. Uh, principally the expression of Christian love toward our neighbor. Uh, and to do that, let me lay down some foundational verses. Uh, first recall that the question was put to Jesus in Mark chapter 12, verse 28. Which commandment is the greatest? And you know how Jesus answered. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. And the second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you understand that, Jesus said, you are not far from the kingdom of God. The foundation of our love is, of course, God's love for us. 1 John chapter 4, verse 19, we love because He first loved us. You will not love God or others well unless you begin to grasp God's love for you. An unconditional love that's not based on merit, but on grace and sheer determination of His will to love you for no other reason than He chooses to love you. And how do you love God in response to His love? By keeping His commandments. Not for duty's sake, but again, it's the response to His initiating love. The Gospel of John, chapter 14, verse 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me, said Jesus. That's how Jesus showed His great love for His Father in heaven, by doing His Father's will, and He did it with great passion and delight. And how do we love others? It is by seeking their best interests over our own. The verses enforce that. Uh, Romans 15, verse 2, Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Also, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 24, Let no one seek his own good but the good of his neighbor. And so the whole world collapses into two groups. Those who love both God and their neighbor and those who don't. The first group inherit eternal life with God and eternal love fulfilled in the presence of God. The second group, eternal separation from God and forever excluded from the presence of His love. Heaven is full of love and hell is devoid of it. There is no divine love there. 
If you will not have love here, why would you expect to love or be loved there? Well, that's uh, the beginning and foundation, but let's go on with the study of love uh, from our text in 1 Corinthians. First, uh, love gives meaning to everything in life. The age-old question is, what is the meaning of life? A better question might be, what gives meaning to life? Do you know what gives meaning to life? It's love. The meaning of life is love, a divine, Christ-like love. And without that love, life has no meaning. If love is not motivating what you do, then what you do means nothing. That's what Paul is saying, I think. What you do for the kingdom, even, preaching, teaching, praying, giving, worshiping, nothing, if you don't have love. Love for God and love for others. It gains you nothing. Tell the Lord, I did all these things in your name. And if you don't have love, He'll answer you. Depart from me. I never knew you. So I trust your thoughts are now focused on love. So let's think about this question. Do I have love? Notice I didn't ask, do I love, but do I have love? That's what Paul is saying. If I have love, or if I don't have love, 1 Corinthians 13, having is possessing love. Well, to answer the question, do we have love, we need to think about what love is. And preparing uh, uh, for this morning, uh, these thoughts on love, I read an old sermon by Benjamin Warfield. It's entitled, The Emotional Life of Our Lord. And in uh, this sermon, Warfield distinguishes between uh, two types of love. There is uh, the love of complacency and the love of benevolence, both displayed by Jesus. Well, the love of complacency has an odd name for us uh, because we tend to think uh, about complacency in its modern use, complacency as indifference or smugness. Well, that would be the very opposite of love. But that's not what the word used to mean. Let me give you an example of how it was used formerly. Uh, uh, Jonathan Edwards, a uh, Puritan preacher in the, uh, colonial America, he was writing in his journal about his time in Northampton. And he says this, Since I came to Northampton, I have often had sweet complacency in God in views of His glorious perfections and the excellency of Jesus Christ, God has appeared to me a glorious and lovely being chiefly on account of His holiness. But what did Edwards mean there by complacency, a sweet complacency in God? 
Well, I'm helped by R.C. Sproul's explanation about how Edwards used that word, complacency. He says what Edwards meant by a sweet complacency had nothing to do with a contemporary dose of indifference or smugness. Rather, it had to do with a sense of pleasure, a delight in that which is supremely pleasing to the soul. I think the love of complacency is described well in the first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. What is the chief end of man? And the answer is the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Enjoy Him. It's sweet. Enjoyment of complacency. Enjoying God for the beauty of his own perfections and person. That's the love of complacency, a love that finds good. But the second type of love, the love of benevolence. Warfield saw this demonstrated in the life of Jesus in Mark chapter 10, verse 21. Uh, There, uh, Jesus is talking with a rich young ruler. We're told that Jesus, looking at this young man, loved him. And then he said to him, one thing you lack. Well, this, said Warfield, is not the love of complacency, but the love of benevolence, meaning not so much a love that finds good, but a love that intends good. And I think this benevolent love is what Paul is getting at in 1 Corinthians 13. It is a love that intends good. How does it do that? It intends good to others by being patient. So you want to ask, answer the question, uh, do I have love? Well, you need to ask yourself, am I a patient man? Or woman. Patient here has the idea of bearing the offenses and injuries caused by others, being long suffering, slow to anger. How patient are you with people out in the world? With your work associates? With a slow waitress at the restaurant? The person in front of you and the checkout line that's just taking so much of your time. You ever honk your horn at the car in front of you and get frustrated? White is green. Get moving. Here's another test. It's your home. How patient are you with your spouse and your kids? If you're patient with your spouse and your kids, you're not far from the kingdom of God. George Mueller founded an orphanage in Bristol, England. If you know the story of George Mueller, a godly man of deep and profound faith and trust in the Lord and prayer, my gosh, he never asked anybody for a contribution to support his orphanage. 
he would always get down on his knees and pray that God would supply the needs of the orphans for that day. God faithfully did. That orphanage is still operating today. George Mueller was just one godly man. But one day he wrote in his journal, this morning, I greatly dishonored the Lord. My irritability manifested towards my dear wife. And that almost immediately after I'd been on my knees before God, praising Him for giving me such a wife. Husbands, can you relate to Mueller? Or have you perfected patience with your wife? Wives, I trust that you can relate to that as well. I know I give my wife plenty of opportunity to practice patience around our house. Our home should be places where patience is most often displayed to the ones we most care about. Moving on, you have love. Ask yourself this. Am I kind? Because love is kind. Kind here has the idea of being mild and pleasant and useful. Are you kind like that to everyone? How do you treat those across the political aisle from you? How do you treat the uh, jerk you have to deal with in your business? How do you speak about or treat those uh, in the gay lifestyle? How do you think about those who are trying to promote uh, racial uh, harmony? Those uh, who might wear a t-shirt that says Black Lives Matter. How do you treat those whom you consider to be your personal enemies or enemies of the Christian faith? Luke chapter 6, verse 27, Jesus said, Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you and pray for those who abuse you. Later in chapter 6 of Luke, verse 35, Love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for He Himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Well, there's your standard for kindness. So I ask you again, how kind are you to others? Do I have love? Well, love does not envy or boast. You have to ask yourself, do I envy others? Do I boast in my own accomplishments? You ever wish that you had the gift and successes or something else of others, whether it's in your business life or even in your church life? Uh, a dear friend of mine has helped me with this as I've thought about my own uh, gifts and more appropriately 
limitations compared to others and teach. He just said to me, teach to your own abilities. That's helpful to me. It's like something I heard some years ago from a very gifted musician. He said, don't envy other people's gifts and don't despise your own. Uh, There's a great example of uh, what envy does uh, to love in the movie Amadeus, if you're familiar with it. It's a movie about uh, Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. It's told through the eyes of uh, Antonio Salieri, who was himself a gifted musician, but Mozart was more gifted. And after Mozart had burst into the scene, Salieri could no longer express love for others or for God through the use of his own musical talents. God, he said, was singing through this little man to all the world, making my defeat more bitter with every passing bar of music. Eventually, Salieri's envy turned into bitterness, and bitterness became hatred. Talking to God, Salieri said, from now on, we're enemies, you and I, because you choose for your instrument a boastful, lusty, smutty, infantile boy and give me only the ability to recognize the incarnation. Because you are unjust, unfair, unkind, I will block you, I swear it. I will hinder and harm your creature on earth as far as I am able, and I will ruin your incarnation. That is true hatred, born out of envy. But love is not like that. It welcomes and applauds the success of others, even in your own sphere of gifts and talents. Are you envious? Or can you be content to watch others as if you're in a parade and you're on the curb, applauding them as they pass you by? Do you have love? Ask yourself this. Do you insist on your own way? Because love does not insist on its own. Uh, The word insist has the idea of looking. You're always looking to turn something for your advantage. To get what you want. But that's not love. Love, rather, is seeking and looking for ways to turn things around to help someone else. Now that goes back to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 24. Let no one seek his own good. Or we might say, seek to get his own way. But rather the good of his neighbor. And how do we measure up to that? I think that really is the essence of... Uh, benevolent love, it is selfless, or more particularly, it's self-sacrificing. And it's captured in the mind of Christ, displayed in the Incarnation. If you have your Bibles, uh, turn uh, to the familiar text of Philippians chapter 2. We'll read verses 1 to 8. 
So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which was which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. The eternal Son of God and the glories of heaven set aside his crown and made himself nothing. Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Well, the idea of selflessness or self-sacrifice I think it's also captured in the word meekness. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Who is the meek person? Well, Jesus is the supreme example in Matthew 11, chapter 28, or Matthew 11, verses 28, 29. Come unto me, all you who labor, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and meek. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, uh, in his uh, messages on the Sermon on the Mount, I think gives a great description of Christian meekness. And let me just uh, I share that with you. He says, what then is meekness? A man can never be meek unless he is poor in spirit. A man can never be meek unless he has seen himself as a vile sinner. When I have that true view of myself in terms of poverty of spirit and mourning because of my sinfulness, I am led on to see that there must be an absence of pride. The meek man is not proud of himself. He does not, in any sense, glory in himself. He feels that there is nothing in himself of which he can boast. It also means that he is not, that he does not assert himself. Uh, the meek man does not demand anything for himself. He does not take all his rights as claims. He does not make demands for his position, his privileges, his possessions, his status in life. No, he is like the man depicted by Paul in Philippians 2, saying, let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. Christ did not assert the right to equality with God. He deliberately did not. And that is the point to which you and I have to come, he says. Then let me go further. The man who is meek is not even sensitive about himself. He's not always watching himself in his own interests. He's not always on the defensive. We know all about that, do we not? It is not one of, uh, is it not one of the greatest curses in life as a result of the fall, this sensitivity about self? We spend the whole of our lives watching ourselves. But when a man becomes meek, he is finished with all that. He no longer worries about himself and what other people say. To be truly meek means we no longer protect ourselves because we see that there's nothing worth defending. So we're not on the defensive. All that's gone. 
The man who is truly meek never pities himself. He is never sorry for himself. He never talks to himself and says, you're having a hard time. How unkind these people are not to understand me. He never thinks, how wonderful am I really? If only people gave me a chance. Self-pity. What hours and years we waste in this. But the man who has become meek is finished with all that. To be meek, in other words, means that you have finished with yourself altogether. That That is the person who can truly be kind to others. The one that can truly love others. So those are some of the essential qualities of love. And now, take what you know about those qualities and think about this. The obligation to love. Now, someone might say, if I'm required to do something because of an obligation, that's not love. And I would answer saying, in the world's economy, you would be right. If you're obligated to do that, it's not love. But you would be wrong in heaven's economy. And let's see if we can't prove this out. Uh, consider again Romans 13, verse 8. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For the one who loves others has fulfilled the law. Well, how does Paul describe love there? He describes it in terms of an obligation. And it's not a one-time obligation, but a continuing obligation. He uses this uh, Greek word, ophelo. That word is not a take-it-or-leave-it suggestion. It is a moral obligation, and it's required of you. Uh, consider some other uses of this word by Paul. In Romans uh, chapter 1, verse 14, he says, I am a debtor, there's the word, I'm under obligation both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise. Same root word as in Romans 13.8. And what is his obligation? It's verse 15, to preach the gospel to them. Because of what God had done for Paul and the commission he had, it was no mere suggestion to Paul to take the gospel. Paul understood it was an obligation upon him. And he was eager to fulfill it. Another word, use of this word, Ophelo, by Paul in Romans, is found in 15, chapter 15, verse 1. He says, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak, not to please ourselves. Bearing with the weak is not optional, it is an obligation. In uh, John uh, chapter 13, verse 14, as Jesus is washing his uh, disciples' feet, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done? 
If I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Ought to. That's our word from Romans 13.8. Obligation. New Testament scholar Kenneth Wiest has translated this verse this way. You have a moral obligation to wash one another's feet, just like you have the continuing obligation to love. Ephesians 5, verse 26, Husband, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. Verse 28, In the same way husbands should There's our word again, obligation. Husbands, you're obligated to love your wives. 1 John 2, verse 6, whoever says he abides in Christ ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. There's our word again. 1 John 3, verse 16, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. 1 John 4, verse 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Those are the ought-tos of the Christian life. But it's not an ought-to if we feel like it. I ought to get up and mow the yard. I ought to get up and get on to work. If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. We have a moral obligation to lay down our lives for the brethren. It is the continuing debt of love that we owe. We'll go back to Romans uh, 13, verse 8, and look again at the objects of our obligation to love. Paul says, the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Well, here it's helpful uh, to know that there are a couple of different Greek words for the word other. Again, this is just the the beauty of the Greek language. just an aside, I remember some years ago, uh, Phil saying, uh, you read the uh, uh, words of the Bible in English, they're beautiful. Compared to the Greek, it's like watching black and white TV compared to Greek, which is like color. Because there's so much in there that is nuanced and, and wonderful. Well, in Greek there are two words for other. One word means another of the same kind. And we're familiar with this word. Uh, Jesus used it in John chapter 14, verse 16, when he told them that he was going away, but he would send another helper, another of the same kind, like unto himself, to help them. But Paul used a different word for other here. He used a word that means another of a different kind. Paul could have used the other, other word, just to say love others who are just like you. 
But he didn't. He said, love others who are different from you. Now that's a test for love because it is so easy to love others who are just like us. Much more is required to love others who are different. But that's the continuing debt that we have to love others who are different. But what could be the motivation for us to love like that and to fulfill so great an obligation? Well, the answer is, of course, it's God's obligation to love us. Is our motivation an obligation to love others? Have you ever thought about that? God's obligation to love us. God's obligation. I didn't think God was obligated to do anything. Listen to John Calvin. He says, the Lord is faithful. He made himself our debtor. Not by borrowing something from us, but by generously promising us everything. That is a striking thought. It hit me like a bolt of lightning. The Lord of creation putting himself under the obligation of his free promise to love us. When we were enemies with God, he made himself a debtor to us by generously promising us If that's the measure of the continuing obligation to love, how far short do we fall of that? So those are some thoughts on love. Again, I need to hear them as much as any person here. But go back to where we started this morning. And here, let me see if I can't bring C.S. Lewis back to our thoughts. The Great Divorce. It may sound odd to be referencing divorce as we think about love, but bear with me and think about this. What was Lewis's point about heaven? It's this, that everything in heaven is more substantial and real than its counterpart on earth. Compared to things on earth, everything in heaven is unyieldingly solid. Grass is more solid, so solid that the blades pierce through your feet. A leaf is so much more solid in heaven that you can't even pick it up. Think about when Jesus walked the earth in his incarnation. Didn't small glimpses of heaven seemed to be breaking out all around him, making things more substantial than they otherwise would be. His pre-incarnation appearance to Moses, heaven breaking out on the mountain, but the wood is made so much more solid that the fire burns if it doesn't consume it. Jesus takes water, turns it into wine, wine that is more substantial than any grape of earth that man can make. 
I see this in the story of Jesus walking on the water. There he is, heaven breaking out around him and the water becoming so solid where he was that you could walk on it. And Peter could walk on it too. Well, if that's true of objects like grass and leaves and water, what about love, which is greater than those things? How much more solid must love be in heaven than on earth? So as we conclude our thoughts of divine love, what it is, how it manifests itself in benevolence to others, how much more solid it should be than what it is in our lives. Note how Paul prefaced all of this discussion on love. At the very end of the previous chapter, chapter 12, he said, I will show you a more excellent way. There is no more excellent way in life than the way of love. And the great thing is, though we despair of ever loving as heaven loves, it is resonant in us now through the gift of the Spirit. Therefore, love may become more and more real and more solid in us. The love of complacency we have for God can become more solid today than when we were first born again. The love of benevolence, that love that intends good for others, can become more solid today than when we first set out on our pilgrimage. And that's my prayer that we would love more solidly, unyieldingly solid, that heaven's love will break out more and more around us. But to what end? Well, first to the end that the love of the world and the things of the world would decrease in us and we'd be replaced more and more by love of God and love of neighbor. A second to the end that you and I would have a godly influence on those around us as we love them. Again, consider the things that dominate our news. Do they not cry out for Christian love? Who will answer that call if it's not us? That will require us to set aside our own interest for theirs. John Bunyan. He's quoted as saying, you have not lived today until you have done something for someone who can never repay you. I would rephrase that for purposes of today's message. You've not really loved today until you have done something for someone who can never repay you. The third, to the end, that many might come to faith in Christ because of the love that we show them comports with the gospel we proclaim to them. And so, we should pray for grace to love more like this. It is not easy to love. 
you would think it would be the easiest thing in the world to love somebody else. It's not. It's hard to love. To love like this, we must bear all things. We must believe all things. And we must hope all things. And we must endure all things. And I think that's why it's called a labor of love. I don't think I need to say more about the difficulties of love. I think we all know that it's supremely difficult to love like that. And that we require a superlative grace if we are to master all those difficulties and overcome them to show the love that is our obligation. A love does not ask to have an easy life of it. Love denies itself, it self-sacrifices, that love may win victories for God and bring blessings upon our fellow men. The way of love is no easy pathway, said one, but her crown is no tinsel crown. Love like this, my friends, that is the way you follow the Lord. You set aside everything in love for us to humble himself. And what did he give in the end? A crown of glory. That is why to follow in his footsteps in the marks of love is to attain a similar crown. It's no tinsel crown if you love like that. It's not easy, but there's grace to do it. There's the resonant love of the Spirit in you. So why don't we love? Have an impact on the world, on those around us, on our communities, in our homes, where we work. That's part of the purpose of our vocation are many vocations to glorify God, to love Him supremely, and to love and serve our neighbor. And so win that crown that we will gladly lay at the feet who loved us supremely, who loved us to the end. And may that mark out our love for others. Amen.